So today's probably going to be a little bit uh, of a different message. If you've heard me speak before, it'll be a little bit different to that. It's going to be a little bit more historical and archaeological. So don't start yawning yet. Hopefully it's going to be helpful to you. Uh, because I think if you actually look into uh, the history behind um, the Magi, the wise men, the birth of Jesus, it actually lends authenticity to it if you know some of the history behind it. Because by and large our culture sees the whole Christmas story as a bit of a fable. Now before I actually start, there's actually some kids' uh, activities and pencils and kind of gear up the back if the kids want a bit of entertainment. We're going to be out of here uh, by 10.30 at the latest. Some of you might scoff at that thought, but it is going to happen, all right? Um, we try to keep it down to an hour during the holidays because we don't have kids' church on. So if you're uh, an adult who's got ADHD or you've got some children, you can go and get some of that stuff to, uh, to help out. You know, timing's everything. Um, one thing that comedians actually do is they uh, study the art of timing because uh, comedy is, is all about the right thing being said at the right time. I wonder if you've ever said this to someone, do you really have to do that now? Have you ever said that? That's a, that's a timing issue, right? Now is not the time to be cleaning your shoes, all right? Now's the time to actually get off your backside and do some work, all right? Uh, what about this one? Could you not have done that another time? Uh, and when you actually look at it, what's Murphy's Law? Murphy's Law is all about bad timing, isn't it? All right? Uh, if anything bad can go wrong, it will go wrong at the worst possible time. That's basically Murphy's Law, right? It's a timing issue. Um, some people would say things like this, I was saved by the bell, all right? It's a bit of a boxing analogy as far as I understand. You're about to go down for the count, the bell went. It went to the break in between rounds. We can get the trainer to kind of spruce us up a little bit. Life can be a little bit more, a little bit like that. And for some of us, good timing would be Jesus coming right before an exam block, wouldn't it? That would be good timing. Um, or before a court case, uh, or even a state of origin decider if you like the blues. Yeah. Any other blues supporters out there? Oh, look at that. How lonely am I right now? Thanks, guys. That's not very Christian. <laughs> well, check this out. This is uh, from Galatians. Chapter 4, it says this, But when the fullness of time had come. Isn't that, that's just a beautiful phrase. Like if you just meditate upon that, you, you think about it from God's point of view. I mean, I'll be talking about this a little bit later, but if you think about God, God is actually a master strategist and planner and organiser. All right? Uh, I think it's in Peter where it says, God's not slow in fulfilling his promise. All right? He's actually very intentional He's very much a planner, and when the time's right, he does things. So you talk about timing, you, get, you learn timing from God because God's absolutely getting timing exactly right. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That's us. That just means that we're under God's law, what the rules that he's prescribed, which ultimately come out of his character. And we've fallen short of what his character is and we've become kind of corrupted and messed up. And uh, basically what Paul's saying in Galatians here is we were stuck uh, in an inadequate place underneath God's standards. So we needed someone to actually come along to be born under those standards, but instead of to fail like we've done, to actually succeed in fulfilling God's standards so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
which includes, it doesn't mean the girls miss out, right? It's just a generic term saying we, we get to be adopted into God's family. That's the purpose of Jesus being born of a woman under the law. What's really interesting, when you, if you just meditate on that phrase, the fullness of time, this is the way historians generally understand uh, the fullness of time. Sorry, I'll just go back one. This is the way they understand it. Basically, what you've got going on in the Middle East is uh, you've got this situation where there's been a whole bunch of Old Testament prophecies that this person, Jesus, was going to come. Greek had become the universal language of the, t- of the time. So in terms of timing, that's really sweet timing if you've got a message which you want to get out to everyone because you don't really need translators. You, everyone kind of speaks Greek. The uh, Roman Empire had actually organised the whole Mediterranean basin into one vast communication empire. All right? So you think about the timing of actually landing Christ right in the middle of a situation where people are speaking the same language, where the, uh, empire, the Roman Empire is so well organised the message can actually get out really quick. And the Romans were particularly proud of the fact of something they called the Pax Romana, which was the Roman peace. So there was a time of, of, uh, of peace that was brought about by the Roman Empire and that is just a prime place to start, in a sense, Christianity. For Jesus to land, the message can get out really, really effectively and easily. So you can see from a historical point of view, it was a fullness of time. It was very very appropriate. Let's uh, read some gear about uh, the the birth of uh, of Christ. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, this is Luke 2 by the way, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now you can call your kid that if you want, but I'll probably get teased. Um, If any of you have actually, has anyone read any historical stuff on uh, Quirinius? Excellent, I might just keep going. I'll tell you one thing. There's skeptics have actually said that the Bible's wrong and Luke's made up some stuff about Quirinius, right? Because it looks like Quirinius was actually uh, in charge after Jesus was born, not actually before. And he actually ordered a census after Jesus was born, not before or at the time that he was born. Interesting thing is that I was just reading yesterday, they've actually just in recent years found a coin with Quirinius's name on it. Now, it looks like there's more than one Quirinius, all right? That's the bottom line. So it's a bit like there's more than one John in Australia. They've obviously had more than one guy whose name was that uh, back in the Middle East. And uh, that kind of uh, explains things. So there's two guys and there's two different censuses actually happening. The interesting thing is that reasonable archaeologists and historians know that Luke is a very, very good historian. So they don't kind of throw out Luke's rendition of what actually happened because he's actually very good at what he does. Anyway, we'll keep going. Um, And all went to be registered, each to his own town, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So I'm basically going to answer four, or give you some ideas about four separate historical events that are part of the Christmas story. The first one is, when was Jesus born? Now you just need to understand before I start that when you actually go back into history like this, different people have got different opinions, all right? 
So I've done some research into some guys that know. One particular guy uh, is called Paul Meyer, and you can look him up if you want. He's an ancient history professor at Western Michigan University, which I understand to be a secular university. Uh, he's a Lutheran guy. And uh, I went looking for corroborating evidence and a couple of other sources for what he was saying because what he was saying was really, really helpful and I'm going to share a lot of that with you today. Um, and I went to a commentary and the commentary referenced Paul Meyer. And I thought, okay, so he must actually know what he's talking about. You can check his book out if you want. There's a book called uh, In the Fullness of Time by Paul Meyer. You can read a couple of chapters on uh, Google Books and then you have to buy it. Uh, I actually thought I bought it from the book depository but then I got a kid's book. So there you go. It shows you how often I actually buy stuff. No, I'm kidding. Angel going, no, that's not true. He's very good at buying things. Just needs new glasses. So when was Jesus born? Was Jesus born on December 25th, AD uh, 0 or 1? Answers, uh, we don't know. All right? Uh, the interesting thing about this is um, we actually know, well, let me split that up. Do we know whether he was born on the December the 25th? Well, we're not sure. Do we know whether he was born on AD 1? We're absolutely sure he wasn't born in AD 1. All right? And let me tell you why. Because Herod the Great, who ordered the slaughter of all the uh, two-year-old and under babies in uh, Bethlehem, actually died in 4 BC. All right? So Jesus was actually born before Christ, if that makes sense. That's the truth, right? So he was born about 4 or 5 BC. And the reason why this is the case is because there was a dude called uh, Dionysius Exegus um, and Paul Moore actually says uh, that he committed the history's greatest error in terms of cumulative effects. So what he actually did is he dated uh, the birth of Christ. He was a monk, I think, in the 4th or 5th, 6th century AD. So, uh, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Uh, and he dated from uh, the birth of Christ to the, the start of the Roman Empire. And I think he made it out to be 700 and 53 years, right? But he actually got it wrong, all right? He got the birth of Christ wrong. So, see, Herod the Great actually died in 749 BC, all right? Sorry, not 749 BC, 4 BC, which is actually 749 years from the start of the Roman Empire to when Herod the Great died. But Jesus had to have been born before him because Herod the Great was involved in uh, the Magi and he was involved in the slaughter of the kids in Bethlehem, that sort of stuff. You with me? So the bottom line here is you just need to know that Jesus was probably born 4 or 5 BC, all right? There's uh, a bit of an error in terms of the, uh, the calendar and the dating. The next thing is this. Um, what part of the year is Jesus likely to have been born in, all right? Now, back, when you go back that far, they're actually notorious when it comes to uh, how specific they are with time, all right? If you go to Luke chapter 4, it actually says that in the year that such and such was um, head of this place and this guy was the high priest, so that it's, it's almost like Luke's kind of nailing something down, but he's not really nailing it down because he's just saying it's in the same year, which gives you about 365 days for something to actually happen in. The interesting thing is uh, it's a little bit like that with Jesus. Now, some people uh, have, have uh, kind of thrown some ideas around and they've said, well, maybe Jesus was actually born in the springtime, Right? And the reason why they give for that is because the shepherds are out in the fields with the flocks, which they didn't normally do, because normally what they'd do is they'd stick them in a corral at night time, so it must have been lambing season, all right? So they're outside with the, lamb, with the sheep, looking after the lambs, keeping an eye on things. The uh, angels show up, and then they go and catch up with uh, Jesus and Mary and Joseph, uh, Joseph in the stable. 
But then there's actually some evidence, and this is the confusion in a sense of history, but then there's evidence to actually suggest that shepherds would be out with their flocks all year round on the lower parts of the mountains. They'd be out there all year round. So this guy, Paul Meyer, his guess is that probably um, Jesus was born in wintertime. That's what, that's what his take is. And wintertime in terms of uh, the Middle East and Israel is uh, around about December to March, all right? So we're actually in the vicinity of December 25, okay? Typically, uh, people actually think that uh, Christmas, December the 25th, and I think I uh, threw this around last year, was actually uh, put on the same day as the, uh, the winter solstice. Have you heard this before? And it was like a, a pagan god. One of the Roman gods was the god of the sun, and they actually used to celebrate the winter solstice on December 25th, and the Christians came along and they thought, this is uncool, the worship of pagan gods, so let's make Christmas on December the 25th, and we can worship the son of righteousness, which is one of the terms given to Jesus, but on the same day as the Roman God, that we would worship the Roman God. That's possible, all right? And I honestly thought there's no way Jesus was born on December the 25th. I've got an article at home which you can read at the moment from the Biblical Archaeological Review where the guy says there's actually a decent chance that Jesus actually was born on December the 25th because if you go back to uh, the traditions that the Jews actually followed, one of the uh, celebrations the Jews had was a celebration of the conception of Jesus, which was on the 25th of March. And if you do your maths, that's literally nine months between the 25th of March and the 25th of December. Um, so I hope I'm not confusing any of you with all these. Is everyone okay? So all I'm saying is we actually don't know what season he was born in exactly. There's evidence for both. Um, I was surprised to find that there was evidence that maybe he actually was actually born on December 25th. Um, it's really interesting. The thing that's probably most interesting about this is we are kind of Nazis when it comes to time now, aren't we? I mean, everyone here's probably got a calendar. You're probably using an iPhone uh, or an iPad or you're using a computer calendar. And you, sometimes you even got it nailed down to the minute, haven't you? I've got to be here. I'm meeting this person at this time. What's so incredibly paradoxical about it all is the guy that has set the standard for the time and the calendars that we have, we actually don't have any specific information about exactly when he was born. Don't you think that's, that's amazing? The one by whom we measure everything when it comes to time, we actually don't have a specific time and a date. So that's the first one. When was Jesus born? And you know, the really cool thing about preaching a message like this is I haven't really given you an answer, all right? I've just told you December 25th is likely, but... Most probably, almost any season in the year, an archaeologist or a historian will pick one of those seasons and give some good reasons for it. The second one, the birth account. This, this is where it gets fun. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in an inn. This is really interesting. Uh, as I was reading some stuff from Paul Meyer, he actually, actually, I was listening to a message of his, a radio interview it was, and he actually said, it probably sounds like Joseph and Mary just arrived too late at night. They arrived late at night. Uh, there's no rooms left. They didn't plan. They didn't book ahead. And then when they're there, the time came for her to give birth and she was obviously in, uh, in the stable there. 
And the interesting thing about the stable uh, that they were in is uh, most of our uh, Christmas stories depict some kind of rundown shed, you know, that you'd see in Western Queensland somewhere. But it's probably most likely that they actually, a, a stable was a cave in the side of a hill, all right? So it's actually most likely that Jesus was actually born in a cave somewhere. Another thing that's really interesting historically is uh, Palestinian women of this time, apparently pretty tanky and pretty tough, all right? And they're pretty uh, proud about their ability to deliver babies on their own without any assistance, all right? So I'm thinking you don't want to meet them in a dark alley, fellas. But uh, the suggestion is that Mary literally got it all done on her own. So uh, she gave birth to Jesus. Um, without going into the details, she fixed herself up, uh, did everything that needed to happen there, wrapped up the baby, put the baby in the feeding trough, and I'll show you one of those in a minute, put the baby in the feeding trough, and then Joseph came in. Because in that day, uh, husbands were not allowed to be uh, midwives, basically. They weren't allowed in there. So uh, obviously they used midwives and they used doctors, but it wouldn't have been unusual for Mary to have got it all done uh, on her own. Just going, where the heck? Is this it over here? You guys watched that happening. You didn't tell me. You're all going, this is going to be fun. He's going to look at his page and go, what is going on? So here's Mary. She's uh, wrapped Jesus up, laid him in a feeding trough. It probably had a Swedish grainy smell of hay, barley and oats. And uh, here's a uh, manger um, that they've actually discovered. Stone mangers of the type used in Palestine during biblical times have been excavated at Solomon's stables in Megiddo. Uh, packed with straw, they provided a safe resting place for infants. You can see how that would work pretty well, yeah? I mean, uh, mums and dads set up stuff like that for their newborns at home, maybe um, on the floor or whatever. They set up pillows and that sort of stuff just to constrain... Uh, the child and uh, keep them safe. So that's, um, that's the second one, all right? Um, that's the birth account. There's a classic Christmas joke. I wonder if you've heard this one before. It goes like this. It goes, uh, what's the definition of impossible? The answer is three wise men. Yeah. There you go. Probably a lack of timing. So the third thing I just want to have a quick look at, and this is really interesting, is the Magi. All right. Now, the Magi is actually the Greek word that's used to describe the wise men. You've probably got a version that uh, uses the, uh, the, wor the words wise men, but if you go to the Greek behind it, it's actually Magi. So we'll just read this. This is out of Matthew uh, chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where, this child, where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. To some uh, historians who... uh, um, are sceptical about the Christian faith. This, this story just seems way too fantastic. These dudes come out of nowhere. They go, where is, uh, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They come with this magnificent question. They show up out of nowhere and then they seem to disappear back into nowhere. And our classic story show, talk about... Uh, um, three of them because there was three gifts but the Bible doesn't say that there was three. Uh, the classic uh, Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient are, they actually weren't from the Orient, all right? The Orient's uh, the Far East, okay? And I'll get into the history here but the bottom line is that they actually came from the Middle East and uh, I'll tell you why we know this. Um, the reason why we know this um, Actually, I'll get to that in a sec. It, it looks like the, uh, the Magi actually came to visit Jesus after he was presented at the temple, right? So there's these, these Jewish laws that say that uh, 40 days after a male child is born, you've got to go and present them at the temple, right? So all the classic stories that we've got, uh, Christmas stories where the shepherds and the wise men, they all kind of show up at the same time and there's bedlam in there and the poor kid can't sleep, all right, are not actually true. It looks like the shepherds came first, the wise men came after, Uh, Jesus had been presented at the temple. Why do I think they came after that? Well, probably the best argument, um, it's probably actually it's the only argument I've heard, but I think it's a really good argument, is uh, Herod put out the decree saying that all babies under two years old had to be be put to death if they were born in Bethlehem, all right? So the chances are you're not going to go rocking up to your local temple with uh, a kid born in Bethlehem unless you've done it before the decree went out. Okay, so it looks like the wise men kind of showed up and obviously Herod knows that the baby could be two years old by this point in time. And uh, so there's, there's a, it looks like they, uh, they took him to the temple and then the, uh, the wise men kind of came in on the show. The interesting thing is the wise men actually went to Jerusalem first, all right? And that actually lends historical authenticity to the story because that's where you'd go. I mean, if it said... The wise men went straight to Bethlehem and they found a house. So it would kind of be, you'd kind of go, well, it could be a bit of a setup. But historically, uh, it's got a bit more authenticity. They went straight to Jerusalem. They ended up having a bit of a chat to Herod, who, uh, if you'd study him, is an absolute psycho, right? Herod is just a psycho, right? He actually murdered his favourite wife, okay? You're kind of going, yeah, well, who murders their favourite wife? I was just kind of thinking about, you're my favourite, so I'm taking you down, all right? That's... <laughs> That's a deal, but he, he murdered his favourite wife and he actually killed two of his own sons. He just got really kind of hyper-anxious and nervous about uh, other people coming and taking the throne off him. So he would kill them because he knew that if you were dead, you couldn't sit on the throne, which is pretty good reasoning. Um, and what you've actually got by the time the wise men actually come on the scene of the Magi, it actually says in uh, Matthew chapter 2 verse 11 there, it actually says that uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus are actually now in a house. I don't know whether you've noticed that. But it looks like they're not, it's not like they're in a cave for like two years, all right? They're in a cave when there's no accommodation. They probably found some relatives or, uh, or some family in uh, Bethlehem. Maybe even they found some people who had some pity on them, all right? 
Oh, she's the poor girl that gave birth in a cave. <laughs> all right? So we're going to give her somewhere to stay. All right? It looks like the, uh, the Magi were actually from uh, the Middle East. Um, it's likely they were either from uh, Mesopotamia, which is where Iraq is now, or, the, or Persia, which is where Iran is now. They were uh, well-educated, they were priestly sages, they were specialists in medicine, religion, astronomy, astrology, divination and magic. All right? And you might say, how the heck do these guys over in Iran find out about Jesus being born? Well, you know what's really interesting when you actually look at the Bible is a whole bunch of the Israelites were taken into exile to where in the Old Testament? Does anyone know? Close to, yeah, yeah, Babylon. They, they got taken to Babylon. Right? Is it, anyone know what I'm talking about? They all got taken out. Now the interesting thing is, uh, I won't ask you to respond here, but if you ask what kind of people did they take to Babylon, you know what they took? They took the cream of the crop. They took the educated people, the theologians, they took the people out of the, uh, the church, the leaders out of the church, and knew heaps and heaps of stuff. And so what you've actually got, uh, I think it would have been close to 10,000 people actually took out to Babylon, right? So what you've actually got is you've got a whole bunch of Jews right in the middle of Mesopotamia, right, right in Iraq, all right? And it probably only takes, this is uh, one historian I read, he said it probably only takes one educated Jew to walk across the street and talk to a, uh, a Magi that lives across the road about a prophecy and all of a sudden you've got the, the dots are actually starting to be joined up and uh, they actually know about it. Now the interesting thing is, just for your information, the... Oh man, I may not preach another sermon like this for a while, so I hope you're hanging in with me. But uh, it looks like the Babylonian Talmud, right? The Talmud's like the rules and the laws for the Jewish faith. The Babylonian Talmud was actually completed in 400 AD, all right? Which actually, what that tells you is that there were, there were Jews in Babylonia right through until 400 years after Christ, okay? So the bottom line is there's actually plenty of people there who know about the prophecy from the book of Numbers about the star rising and a king coming uh, to actually pass the information on to get these guys fired up. Whew. How are we going? Are you going okay? I've got five minutes. I'm going to do the last one, the star, then I'm going to finish. What the heck was the star? It says this in Matthew 2 verse 2. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. All right? So most likely the wise men, church tradition kind of tells us the wise men came from Persia, all right? the church of the nativity, uh, which is traditionally the place where they think Jesus was born, has got an inscription over the top of it that's got uh, magi in Persian dress. All right? So much so that when the Persians came through to wipe out pretty much everything in their path on one of their conquests, after Jesus, they got to the church in the nativity, saw some of their guys in their Persian dress and they left the church alone. All right? So they're probably from Persia. They probably heard about this prophecy from Numbers 24 verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of uh, Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. That's uh, well known as a messianic or Jesus-oriented prophecy. So this, is, uh, this prophecy is there, probably one of the Jews has talked to a Magi about it and they tended to be astronomers and they liked to uh, know what was going on in the heavens. So what were the possibilities regarding the star? Well, here you go. One of them is it could have been a comet. It could have been... Uh, one of the things that historians suggest it might have been is actually a nova or a supernova. 
which is kind of a star exploding and disintegrating. And they're very, very bright when they do that. Um, it obviously could be a miraculous event. If God created stars at the start, it doesn't take much effort for him to just stick one there for the time that he needs it to be there and then take it away. But the last one I just want to read a couple of quotes out of uh, Paul Meyer's book. It's just absolutely fascinating if you're into history. If you're not, it's probably a little boring for you. But check this out. Every 805 years, the planets Jupiter and Saturn come into extraordinary repeated conjunction with Mars joining the configuration a year later. Since the great Kepler first alerted them to it in the early 17th century, astronomers have computed that for 10 months in 7 BC, Jupiter and Saturn travelled very close to each other in the night sky and in May, September and December of that year, they were conjoined. They were joined together. Mars joined this configuration in February of 6 BC Amassing of planets that must have been quite spectacular indeed. So you imagine the ancient sky with no electricity, you've got three major planets actually line up together, that's going to look pretty bright. But more, the astrological interpretations of such a conjunction would have told the Magi much, if, as seems prob probable, they shared the astro astrological law of the area. Let's skip that last bit. In ancient astrology, the giant... Check this out. This spins me out. Now, we don't know whether this is the case or not, right? But this is really fascinating. In ancient astrology, the giant planet Jupiter was known as the king's planet. Isn't that interesting? For it represented the highest god and ruler of the universe. Um, and the ring planet Saturn was deemed the shield or defender of Palestine. Well, the constellation of the fishes, rah, rah, rah. So Jupiter encountering Saturn, encountering Saturn in the sign of the fishes would have meant that a cosmic ruler or king was to appear in Palestine at the culmination of history. Isn't that interesting? That's the way they would have read it. This at least may help to explain why the Magi were well enough informed to look for some king of the Jews in Palestine. Spin out. The king's coming to Palestine. That's kind of the way the Magi would have read it. So let me ask you this question in closing. Yeah, you could just say, oh, I see a manger, all right, which is true, all right. Pardon me. Is there a tissue up there? Someone got me a tissue. Thanks. Guys, if you've been here long enough, you know there's some kind of oppressive, evil spirit of the nose. <laughs> iPhones. You can press the uh, round button. I don't even, what's that called? What's that round button called? Does anyone know? Home button. I don't know why. You press that button, you press the power button. What does it do if you press them at the same time? Screen capture, right? And on uh, a PC, you can actually hit, hit the button, print screen, and it'll capture what's on the screen. You know, at any point in time, theoretically, imagine if we could just do a screen capture of what your perception of God is. Because, you know... I actually think every single minute through the day, everyone's got a bit of an idea of what they actually think God's like in their head. And often it fluctuates with our circumstances. So sometimes, uh, sometimes God looks a bit like a drill sergeant, doesn't he? He's just kind of, he's a guy standing there pointing, telling you what you should do and hurry up and pull your socks up and get it done. Sometimes, um, maybe you look at the Jesus in the manger you think, oh, he's a soft, cuddly baby and he's never going to take me through any, anything tough. God's just a nice kind of Santa Claus. His job is to give me stuff. And I'll, uh, that's what prayer is. Prayer is because he doesn't fully know what he needs to give me, so I need to tell him and then he'll give me the stuff that I want. All right? 
Um, and it's interesting how often, I, I think often our perception of what God is like from moment to moment often doesn't meet uh, who he really is. I probably never meets who he is, but it really actually is the kind of God that we need in our particular circumstance that we're going through. But I just want to throw one thing at you. When I look, uh, one of the things I see when I look at Jesus in a manger is uh, I see the word yes. All right? 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. God, prior to Jesus coming, has made lots and lots of promises, hasn't he? I'll never forsake you. I'll look after you. I'll give strength to the weary. You see, but what it was is it was God kind of writing out a check without having, in a sense, the money in the bank account. The check was there. The check was going to be good. But it all depended upon this baby coming whose name was Jesus. When Jesus comes and he lies in that manger as a little baby, you know what he is? He's God's big yes. Amongst so many other things, he's God's big yes. So when you're anxious and you think, does God really care? Well, the scriptures tell you God does care and he'll look after you. And Jesus says, yes, pay in full. Pay in full. So later on this afternoon, it's actually the Jesus that's lying in the manger that says, pay that one in full. Pay that promise in full. Help that person. Help that lady. Help that man. Help the neighbour down the road that doesn't know Jesus. Pay in full because the baby was lying in a manger. Jesus is the big yes. And Christmas, in a sense, is not... Sometimes I think, uh, a lot of the time in my life, and I I think sometimes for some of us, we think God's, it's a bit like you're having an arm wrestle with God and if you can beat him, he's got to give you what you want. You know? And sometimes people kind of fast and pray and fasting and praying sometimes can become this kind of arm wrestle thing. Like if I do this, if I make this sacrifice, then God has to do it. He doesn't have to do anything. You don't have to force him or twist him or manipulate him or trick him into doing anything because the person's view of God who thinks you've got to trick God into doing something is that God's harsh and he's withdrawn, and he doesn't want to help. That's not the God that you actually read about in the Bible, is it? He does want to help. He does promise to help. He does help. But what is the rubber stamp that it's happening? It's Christ, isn't it? Jesus says yes to every promise of God. And so I'll just encourage you over the next week or so uh, leading into Christmas I wonder if you can sneak a couple of minutes away, even when you're really busy doing something, just in your mind and just think, what do I actually think God's like? What's my view of God? What, what perception do I have of him? Does it actually fit what he's like? Do I see him as a, a father who frowns and he's got a scowl on his face and begrudgingly gives? Or do I see God as a generous giver that is always doing things? Because that's what he's like. I might just close in prayer. Jesus, thanks that your coming means yes to every promise of your Father. Thanks that for the rest of today when we need to draw on your promises, which is pretty much constantly, there'll never be a time where you just go, no. No, I won't help you. No, I won't come to your aid. There will always be yes. 
And it'll always be yes, Jesus, because you were prepared to live inside the skin of a tiny, fragile little baby. Thanks for doing that for us. Thanks for um, caring for us and loving for us. People who just don't warrant any of it. We don't deserve any of it. We haven't earned any of it. Amen.